T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Healthcare, and specifically community health care, is something we likely take for granted until we really need it. Nothing has tested that need as much as these past few months living in the coronavirus pandemic. In this edition of 880 In-Depth, we shine the spotlight on a local hospital in Morristown, New Jersey, Morristown Medical Center. As members of the staff there look back on the past four months, living through the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we had one, one man who ended up passing away before he left, and he was intubated but awake. So we would set up the Zoom session, and his wife would then put the iPad in the kitchen, and she would cook dinner with him and then sit him at the dinner table with them. And this was someone that they saw they didn't see for over 30 days, and he ended up not making it home. And, like, I'm so grateful that we gave them that. What was it like living those days? What's it like today? And how has it prepared us for tomorrow? I'm Tim Scheld from WCBS News Radio 880, and this is 880 in depth our weekly deep dive into a story of interest in our community. Morristown Medical Center sits on the eastern edge of Interstate 287 in a leafy New Jersey suburban community just 30 miles west of Manhattan. In January, the coronavirus was little more than a tabletop exercise, preparing for something no one ever thought would make its way here. By mid-April, they were knee-deep and ever grateful for that planning that allowed them to somehow stay just ahead of the crisis. Morristown Medical Center is part of the Atlantic Health System. It's a 600-plus bed facility that handles almost 40,000 admissions in a normal year. This has not been a normal year. At the peak of COVID-19 in mid-April, Morristown Medical Center was taking care of over 300 patients a day, a mix of critical care COVID patients and people suffering from the effects of coronavirus. Today, they're down to 30 COVID patients and seeing a return to near-normal operations. They invited our Peter Haskell to come in for a look. Okay, would you mind? Actually, can I borrow you for As a airports changed after not 11, hospitals have been turned upside down by COVID. Good afternoon, how are you? I'm doing well. In the last 12 hours, have you taken anything for a fever? No, I have not. Any flu-like symptoms? No. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right. 
All right, well, you have a wonderful day. Be you safe. Too. Visitors coming here to Morristown are all screened for fever. We toured the hospital with President Trish O'Keefe. So we started uh, receiving our first patient on March 5th. Thankfully, we had started planning since January on the surge. And uh, hi, sorry. Oh, that friend of patient. So, um, so we started our planning uh, in January about our approach from a surge perspective. So that includes space, supplies, staffing, and communication. So it's with a methodical approach from a phased perspective. So we're now in phase 28 right now and, uh, and heading in a very positive direction. The phases were spelled out on whiteboards in what was set up as a war room. James Wittig is chairman of orthopedic surgery. With fewer operations to do, he became one of the key players in the battle. So uh, we had a command center that was set up where we were... Um, Doctors and uh, administration were paired up during the week and on weekends, and we took call, and it was our duty to make sure that we rounded throughout the hospital and that everything was going smooth on all the floors. And any questions that came up, concerns, issues, we, we took care of them, and we took care of them promptly and immediately. Uh, it could be something as simple as somebody getting a mask fit, or it could be something complex as a very difficult, challenging, uh, medically challenging patient showing up in the ER that was symptomatic with COVID and getting them the proper care. So we were sort of the, uh, the troubleshooters throughout the hospital. And that's how our role sort of changed a tiny bit while this was going on. How many people did you have there at any one time? Uh, there was typically four of us there on the weekend, and during the week, I mean, it was almost the whole team in and out, like up to 20 of us, I think, you know, constantly on top of everything. He's concerned about people ignoring the routine medical care. There were physicals and diagnostic tests and even treatments that were skipped and delayed. He thinks there's no reason to be fearful about coming back. Tell us about some of those things that are keeping people safe and making patients feel safe. Mm -hmm. So in, in terms of the, the operating room, um, we have a separate COVID OR for any COVID patients that may experience uh, a surgical problem and require surgery. And there's uh, special cleaning of those rooms. They're subjected to UV light. They're negative pressure, special air filtration systems. And that's completely separated from the main OR. We have separate teams that um, transport the COVID patients. And we have laid out separate pathways in the hospital where the COVID patients would travel on a stretcher or in a wheelchair to and from the, uh, their um, hospital rooms. Uh, all any rooms that COVID patients have been into have been thoroughly disinfected by with high-level uh, disinfected devices as well as subjected to UV radiation. The orthopedic floor in particular did not have any COVID patients on it, so, um, so that really didn't need to be subjected to dramatic cleaning efforts, uh, just standard. But um, everybody is wearing masks, we're maintaining social distance, 
There's no nurses that will, will be treating a COVID patient and then subsequently going to treat a non-COVID patient. And the census has dropped uh, dramatically where we were, where you know, approximately 50% of our capacity last time was COVID patients. Now it's far less than 5%. And we are testing, testing probably 500 to 600 patients a day who are undergoing surgical procedures. And we're only finding that uh, about 0.7%, far less than 1%, are testing positive for COVID. And we're separating those patients out and we're de delaying their surgery uh, if appropriate. Are you meeting them by the registration? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Can we go straight the greatest stress, at least at first, was felt in the emergency department. A tent was set up outside for triage. Five nurses donned protective gear to take temperatures and do assessments. Then patients were routed accordingly. Dr. Dan Weiner is department chairman. One challenge was finding space. As the COVID patients were ramping up, give us a sense what it was like here. Well, you know, it started very slowly. We really started with one room in the corner of our emergency department that was a negative pressure room. We started training our staff on how to don and doff personal equi protective equipment. Um, and we thought, you know, this will be it. We'll have this space to do this. And very quickly, we went from room, one room to three rooms to an entire part of the emergency department to two parts of the emergency department to virtually the whole emergency department over a period of about a month or so. As things ramped up, did you feel that you were ahead of it, or was there a point where you said, uh-oh? I think Morristown as an institution did a great job and that we stayed ahead of it. We were always thinking, what's the next place we're going to use? Where can we isolate people? How can we use alternative spaces for people that don't have COVID? So we always, and I, we were very lucky in this regard, or we made our own luck in the sense that we always had personal protective equipment. We always had the staff we needed. We got resources from elsewhere in the hospital that weren't as busy with uh, things were starting to slow down, like the operating rooms. So I really felt we were always one step ahead of what was happening. And pardon this question, were people dying in the emergency department? Yes. And how did that compare? What, w what was that number like and what was just dealing with it like? I, I'm not sure I can quantify for you, but it's difficult, right? Usually people have family at the bedside when that's happening. You can talk to people and start to prepare them for what's about to happen because you can anticipate that. People didn't have family members. We were talking on cell phones. We were working very hard to use FaceTime and other video conferencing. But I think it was stressful for patients not to have their families there when they were getting sicker, for families to be outside in cars, and for staff not to be able to have that face-to-face -face communication with patients and their, with patients' families. Sounds like that's a lot of responsibility. It is, and I, and I think people really stepped up to that, right? There was a lot of effort to fill in that gap of what you can usually talk to a family about and the kind of support you can give them is, is certainly much harder in a video environment. So did hospital staffers stay with people until the end? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, most of these people were, were actively medically trying to resuscitate them. It's, certainly in the emergency department, this is not a situation where you're saying, uh, all, we've done all we can. We are fighting to help people right up until the moment they die. So 
the situation may be different up on the floors, but in our environment, uh, yes, you're, somebody's absolutely with people. And we tried to dedicate people to communicate with families as well and let them know what was going on. Back in the war room with President Trish O'Keefe, we talked about what comes next. We hear about the possibility of a second wave. Yeah. How are you better prepared now, if and when that comes? Sure. We have a game plan now. Uh, as we said, we were learning a lot during this process. It's a brand new disease that we've never cared for before. We have a playbook, and when that playbook includes how we will expand our facility, how we will expand our staff. We now have educated staff and caring for the COVID population uh, much larger than we, than we had in the past. So it's really, again, about space, facility, staff, support to make sure that we have a, an enough and adequate supply of PPE and a stockpile, which our system has in place right now for us. Uh, ventilators, PPE, we are ready. Uh, if it does happen again. So uh, so we've got a good playbook. Uh, may take a right or left as, as uh, phase two happens, but, uh, but we feel very, very prepared at this point. You have PPE you would need. We do. We do have PPE and stockpiled and, and waiting. We have adequate supply right now, and our, and our goal is for months of supply, which our, our chief financial officer at the system has in place for us. In terms of space, were there parts of the hospital that were built out to have patients that normally wouldn't? Uh, th there were in, in a couple of different areas and different types of patients. So we had our pediatric unit converted to an adult intensive care unit. Uh, thankfully, we had that capacity, right? We had downstairs converting uh, some other outpatient areas to a support area from an inpatient standpoint if we needed but we were very, again, blessed with adding those 72 additional beds a month before because that was, that was truly, truly a saving grace for us from a bed capacity standpoint. How much did reality match up to your planning and how much did it diverge? Yeah, so we modeled, uh, you know, worst case scenario, best case scenario. We were about right in the middle uh, as a system and also as a region in general. Uh, we think that the social distancing, and you really saw that trend as people were educating and the state and the county was closing down, you really saw the decrease uh, in the spread. So that was a huge, huge transition for us. As you might expect, the COVID experience left a significant impression on everyone at the medical center. Take the story of pediatric life specialist Jamie Getz. She normally worked in the pediatric ICU, working with critically ill children and their families. With the pediatric ICU turned into a COVID ward, Jamie began working with critically ill adults. We are typically working with the families a lot, and all of a sudden, we had no interaction with the families and only the patients. Um, and it really was a struggle. Um, such a different routine, plus then the, fam the, the families are not here. <laughs> Um, the patients are by themselves, and you don't get to know the patients as well as you typically do. So it, it, that part was a huge struggle for the staff. How did you deal with that, and, and what did you do to compensate? So typically we are working with pediatric families, um, the patient and then the families. 
But with the adult patients, they had no one here. So we started reaching out via email and I asked them to send me pictures that then we would post outside the doors so the staff could see that the person was a person. You know, we had family photos, we had nicknames or like their favorite hobbies or different stories about them that we would post outside. Why? It really helps connect um, with the patient to remember that that is a person. That's someone's person that you're treating. It's someone's dad, mother, you know, stepfather, whoever it is. They're not just, you're, they're never just patients to us. What was it like dealing with families not in person and how did you communicate with them? So we started off the email and um, phone calls and then we actually had Zoom set up. So we had Zoom set up in the rooms and then we would kind of set it up outside of the room first so that we made sure it was the right family member so we also could get that face-to-face -face contact. Trying to share with a family member about a patient's condition when they're not here, what was the challenge of that and what was that like? It was very difficult over the phone. Um, it's very hard to imagine the things that we saw just when you're explaining it to someone over the phone. Um, it was very, very difficult for them. The the video calls and the Zoom ended up working very well because they were able to then visualize what we were seeing. What was that like for you to, to see and to hear the family member on the other end and looking at what you were seeing? Yeah. It's very difficult. We are extremely patient and family-centered care directed here and you want to do everything you can and you're very limited over the phone. So we sent resources and we spent time talking to them. We had families send us cases of water and you know goodies on a daily basis, just kind of expressing their, their thanks and appreciation for the time that we were spending talking to them. What was the toughest thing that you had to deal with? Huh, that's, the change of having adults in our unit, first of all, was huge, um, but it actually was amazing because we not only had the adult patients, but we then had the adult staff there who we didn't know, but we all bonded together. I'm telling you, we met people from across the hospital we never would have met. And we now are Facebook friends are texting and reaching out to each other. So that part of it, I didn't expect at all. And at first it was difficult having people you didn't know in your space, but at the end it was amazing. Were you with people when they died? I was not, I was outside the room. Um, the nurse and the respiratory therapist were um, typically in the room. And then how many times were you outside looking and seeing this happening? I honestly don't know. I can't count. A lot. Um, yeah. How do you cope with that? Um, I live at the beach, so I go for walks on the beach and we talk to our coworkers. You know, we all sort of process together. Everyone, everyone is talking to each other and this is definitely something that we are going to be talking about for a while and struggling through but you know having your coworkers who have all kind of gone through the same experience is is priceless i suspect it's somewhat of a shock to the system when you're not used to this yes it was we were all working extremely long days and it was non-stop just being able to go into a room takes such preparation in order to keep yourself safe um, and then we were also having someone stand outside the room to make sure that you were not contaminating yourself. Or, so just that process in itself was exhausting. How many hours a day? I was here, typically my shift is eight hours, but there, for a straight month, we worked six days a week for 12 hour shifts. So physically and emotionally, how do you, how do you 
navigate this? It's just kind of what you do because you focus on the patient and you just have to get it done. That's why everyone's here is to focus on the patient. So that was kind of just like our directive. And I just want to get back to trying to create this human connection. What does that do? Why is that so important? And, and how does that change your, how does that help? It really, it really helped us connect to who the person was and focus on what they were outside of here. You know, a lot of the patients, there were patients who passed away who I never even saw awake. But I honestly feel like I know them. I know their backstory. I know their life story. I know about their children. Um, I know about the impact that they made on the world. And that is just, you know, they're not just, they're not just someone laying in a bed. Sounds almost like a responsibility. Yes, absolutely. And it also sounds like you were part therapist for their families. Yes, it was, it was a lot of, and it was also therapeutic for us though, because it's nice to see that side of someone. You know, I was going to ask you, and you might have partially answered it, but you're not trained to be a therapist, but here you are providing that kind of emotional support. Right. So we provide education and support for families and children on a daily basis, not therapy related, um, but related to their hospitalization. So in that sense, it was similar to what we do, but not, it was a lot more. <laughs> it was a lot more. And I apologize, but if you could just describe what those Zoom or FaceTime calls were like. So we, it was different for everyone. Um, we had one, one man who ended up passing away before he left, and he was intubated but awake. So we would set up the Zoom session, and his wife would then put the iPad in the kitchen, and she would cook dinner with him and then sit him at the dinner table with them. And this was someone that they saw they didn't see for over 30 days. And he ended up not making it home. And, like, I'm so grateful that we gave them that. What was that like for you to witness this? It was so exciting for us, actually, because at first people were very hesitant to, to starting, you know, the Zoom. They were afraid that the families wouldn't react well. And after they saw things like that, all of the nurses were coming to me and they're like, let's set up a Zoom session for this family. It really, it's, it's so hard not having the family here. And I just kept reminding people. Typically, the family's in the room with us, you know, and now they're outside. So it's the least that we can do to at least let them, you know, have a glimpse a couple times a day. Did you hear people say goodbye? I did. I did. If you could, what, what did you hear? Um, talking about their life together, talking about all of the things that they did, all the things that, you know, they were going to miss, um, all the just memories and stories one wife sang a song, just a variety of a variety of things. It was it was very difficult for for all of us, for all of us. How do you walk out of that room and take a breath and say, "I've got to move on"? Yeah, because there's always another patient and there's always someone else, you know, that needs you. And at the end, it's not it's not our story and it's not our sorrow. So we feel a part of it 100%. But I can't then stop stop me from doing something else. When you go home now, what's that like? It's getting better now. At first, it was very exhausting, and I didn't move much on the weekend. So as things have gotten better, we've all started, you know, doing more. But the f for, for about a month, we did not do much more than, you know, go home and lay on the couch. And in the heat of this, when you would get home and you've got to turn it off and go to bed, were you able to do that? Most nights most nights it's 
it took it took a lot, but you know you have to come back. What were the things that made it difficult for you to actually fall asleep? Just the thought of honestly, if my parents were sick and here and not being able to you know to come in that was that was the hardest part is you know what's going on and thinking of your family members being in that same situation that that was probably the hardest part sounds like a burden it's kind of what we chose though you know like this is we're here um and it was not something any of us expected but i honestly didn't see a single person turn away i mean the most random people were doing the most random things around the hospital you know we had integrative medicine you know nurse nurses helping to fold laundry it was just everyone was everywhere doing i don't think a single person said no to anything so did this confirm for you your career choice or did it make you question it i have always loved what i've done um and it's that's why we're here so it's just a part of it's part of the daily and w- w- i i suspect there's a tremendous sense of satisfaction I am very proud of the things we were able to do. We we started off very slow and kind of figuring out what was happening, but once we got our foot on, you know, our foot on us, we kind of just sailed from there. So tell me about this kind of connection that you made with families. So we had started off with the the pictures and just emailing back and forth and then one family actually would come every day and sit in the parking lot. Um we let them know where the patient's room was and what window was his. And so we actually had them sit in the parking lot in their car outside the window. Um, we started writing notes back and forth to them in the window, just saying hi and, you know, that we're thinking of you. They started writing notes back to us every day and they would get such a kick out of just like flashing the lights and waving, you know, waving back at us. The daughter would get out of the car and take sidewalk chalk and drew like beautiful murals on the sidewalk to us. It was just a constant. It was almost like they were there with us, even though they were outside. We saw them. We saw them. They were there. How old was the patient? Um, Roughly. Middle, mid, middle age. Okay. Yeah. What did they tell you about why they did this? They had such a strong feeling that they needed to be here. Um, and they, they could not leave this patient alone. So they wanted to be as close as they could be. When you looked out the window and you saw this, what was that like for you? We were so excited, honestly. Like I said, we typically have families in the room, so we're used to that, and it was such a difference not having them there. And it also, it really told us who he was. You know, we really learned from the wife and the daughter who this patient was. Did he make it? Did not. What was that like? Um, That was very difficult. That was very difficult. watching the goodbye and and seeing how much they were struggling was very difficult but they i think we honestly did as much for them in this pandemic as we possibly could have did you have to be the person to tell them um i was not did you communicate with them afterwards yep i did the i sent the wife an email just following up and she actually sent a very nice letter back thanking the entire staff for everything that they had done that's kind of help. It, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We, we felt like we had tried our hardest, but just to hear it from her was, was great. You know, this may sound stupid, but it's almost like they would say in the Army, you know, don't get too close to these people because of the, the pain that it could bring. Did you think about that? 
Yes and no. It's that's what we do, though. You can't not get close to them, and especially in this situation. The, those patients had no one else, so we had to get close to them. You felt her responsibility. Absolutely. And back to the idea of community health care and how we sometimes take it for granted. Peter Haskell with Morristown Medical Center President Trish O'Keefe. In terms of the outside community, how did they treat this facility and what did it mean for the folks here? Yeah, beyond belief, Peter. Never, our community has always been so supportive to us through the years. It's been a wonderful partnership. But bar none, I have never seen such an outpouring of support. And by support, I mean emotional support, donation support. Uh, We would see thousands of meals per week coming in for breakfast, lunch, and dinner around the clock, uh, supporting our teams in so many ways. Also, many donations went to a fund to support the restaurants in our community to then feed the hospital. So it was that wonderful circle of of support in life as well, too. Also, it was during St. Patrick's Day time, and uh, that is huge in Morristown, and we have a huge parade. We ended up having three St. Patrick's Day parades through our hospital area outside, over a hundred cars, firemen, policemen, people with signs, their children, their dogs, everyone. We love you, Morristown. And just at at certain key components of COVID, uh, the time frame, the timing was perfect. Uh, So not a dry eye sometimes because they had the bagpipers playing as well too, but but I am just so proud to live and work in this community. Is there is there an untold story, something that has not gotten enough attention or any attention? Oh boy, where did I? There's so many, so many stories. Um, I, I will tell a little bit about the emergency department story, uh, as we spoke to earlier. So we have a resident uh, who we knew uh, the patient was going to be passing. Uh, he had no one with him. Uh, He was going fairly quickly. He spoke to the patient's daughter. Ten family members he spoke to and let the family members speak to the dying patient, uh, and he stayed with him for for over two hours till he passed. They they played Amazing Grace during that time frame. Uh, I received a wonderful letter from someone explaining all this and these are the untold stories and um, probably countless more. Our thanks to Trish O'Keefe and her staff for giving Peter the tour and access to their people. WCBS 880 In-Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. Executive producers are Peter Haskell, our intrepid reporter, and myself, Tim Shell. Special thanks to the Morris County St. Patrick's Day Parade Committee for the music. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and tell a friend to allow us to grow. We're all about sharing stories, and this is such a great platform for us. We wish you a great week. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. 
Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. 